Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast. Today with me is a person I'm very interested in talking about. He is our first submariner on the podcast, has spent a lot of time in a tube underwater doing one of the most difficult jobs in the Navy, working on a nuclear a nuclear power, and very excited to learn about that because, you know, as an Air Force guy, I don't know much about that. <laughs> Since then, he has transitioned out of the military and he worked in, in multiple capacities, first in education as a director of operations and a military liaison for Carolina Career College, and now owns his own business, which you can see promptly displayed on his t-shirt, where he now recruits Navy nukes into the civilian workforce. And now we're going to learn all about that introduction. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Billy. It's super exciting to to be here. I'm glad we connected and I appreciate the mission of the information you're trying to put out there and I hope I can help. Oh, I know you will. And at the very least, you are inspiring me to continue growing my hair out because your flow is beautiful, sir. It's been <laughs> two years since a haircut. Uh, September 15th, 2021 was oh my was gosh. my last haircut and this was not planned unexpected just happened and i don't really know where it's going so we will see you're just gonna keep going I, that's what people tell me they go like how long is do you want it to go and i was like i don't know until it's done i guess yeah is touching the floor too far yeah exactly <laughs> down to my butt let's go oh man so Let's dive right into it. I'm very fascinated to talk to you about your life in the Navy. When did you join the Navy and how did you get into submarines? Yeah, joined the Navy late 2011 is when I left for boot camp. I probably signed my contract early 2011 and the, the path that led me to the Navy was a, an unsuccessful freshman year of college. So... From there, I didn't just go and talk to a recruiter and sign papers. I tried to be smart about it. I met with every recruiter that was in. So I went to a, a pod where there was all five branches were there, right. pre-Space Force. And I ended up talking with probably three or four different branches and found out about the nuclear program. So I knew about the nuclear program before I, I even enlisted. And figured out like, hey, I want to do that. Nuclear powers seems, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it seemed like a good learning. If you're going to learn something in the military, nuclear power seemed like a really good thing to learn. So joined 2011, went directly to boot camp. After two months of boot camp, it was down to Charleston, South Carolina for two years of schooling and then four years active duty out in the Pacific Northwest attached to two, two different submarines. 
Okay, so first off, that's a really sick place to be stationed. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi for my tech school, so I'm very jealous because Charleston is tight. I love that. I love that city so much. The food's great. It's beautiful. So congrats on scoring an awesome tech school location. It was nice. One one question before we dive into your time up in the PNW. Why do you think you decided to pivot into the Navy after freshman year? Because I know a lot of people who go in and have a horrible freshman year, whether it be grades or experience, and they just keep throwing money at the problem because in today's day and age, I feel like a lot of people are very programmed to just got to do college stuff. So why do you, what do you think stopped you from doing that? Yeah, I had some thoughts of military in, in, in high school and went to college because it was what was supposed to be done. It was pretty clear after a year that if I wasn't going to do college, it was pretty clear after a year, I didn't need to do college. I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do. Uh, but, but college was not going to happen. And then I remember your first question, which was why or how did I get into submarines? And I, I had the option. Once I discovered the Navy nuke program, you find out whether either on board carriers, which are floating cities of 5,000 ish people, or they're on submarines, which are super small communities. And there was something about the small community that just drove me towards submarines. It had nothing to do with the space. It was purely about the number of people I was going to be with. And I guess knowing all their faces and names and having an effect, it was more visible in a crew of 150 versus 5,000. That makes Uh, a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. And so you go out to, where is the naval base? Were you in Seattle or where is the naval base up there? It's across the water from Seattle. There's two, and my boat was in both of them uh, throughout my time up there. But one is called Bangor and one is called Bremerton. Uh, so they're on the other side of, of Seattle that you take the ferry across the water. So yeah, those were my two two bases up up in the PNW, only separated by about 30 minutes. And what was it like working on subs, specifically their power systems? Extremely intense very team focused. There's no way to know everything, but the training before that, it was two years of training in Charleston divided into three different segments. So when you go to a boat, you're prepared enough, but essentially you just start from scratch you get handed a 300 page qual card with hundreds, if not thousands of checkouts and signatures, and you get told to, to go learn. And you do what you did in school just for real. Um, and it's definitely intimidating. It's insane hours, but it's, there's camaraderie in the whole engineering department because everyone is doing the insane hours. It's not just you. Yeah. And what was life like when you're underway? Because people have seen things like Hunt for Red October or U571 yeah. or the, all these different all these different submarine movies and they, I'm sure people have an idea of what it's like, but what is it like living under the water in a tube? Yeah. You, you get into a routine. It's definitely tiny. It's nine full grown adults per maybe a 15 by 15 room, three stacks of three beds. So you got a low, medium, high rack on 
the forward, aft, and side sidewall. So you definitely get close. You also go into a really standard routine. Once you're underway, you, you, you switch to military standard time. There's no sunrise or sunset as far as like looking out of a window. Those don't exist on submarines, by the way. Number one question I get asked a lot. <laughs> so they're not like so, in that movie, the Atlant- they're not like in Atlantis, <laughs> that DreamWorks movie where you can see where, stuff. Yeah, you're just looking out at beautiful coral reefs and cool ocean animals and all that stuff. So you really just get into a routine and the routine is pretty much eight hours of standing watch eight hours of doing maintenance and then eight hours of learning and continuing to do maintenance. And you'll notice that was all 24 hours of the day. So you squeeze in, you squeeze in the sleep normally during that, that last half. But as a new person aboard a submarine, you're expected to put an extreme amount of effort towards qualifying and learning. Gotcha. And do you ever, do people really have any like hobbies or anything that they do or is it really is it like you're doing the job and that's like you eat sleep work types yeah one of my favorite hobbies was to see how long i could go without looking at my watch so that was a fun one other than that if you're qualified the mechanics and those divisions tend to work out pretty hard those tends to be the, the big bicep buff guys But my entire experience was purely focused around qualifications and our department was just too busy. So the answer is there's really no hobbies. Maybe on a Sunday you can volunteer to do a lot of people's laundry and you get to sit in the laundry room for five hours, which I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad. But yeah, no, no real hobbies to, to speak of. And how long are these cruises for? Yeah. So the boat that I was able to go on a deployment on is called an SSGN. It's a a guided missile submarine that has actually been converted to support special forces operations. So they they converted missile tubes and put two mini submarines on top of a big submarine. Um, it, It was super, super cool. So that was the USS Michigan. You can definitely look it up on Wikipedia. Everything I'm saying here is all public knowledge. And I honestly forgot the question. Just how many, well, how long were the cruises? Okay. Is that, uh, thank you. So we, that boat was forward deployed out of Guam. My overall deployment was about seven months, but we spent the vast majority of that doing basically day missions off of Guam, which were practice. So we practiced 99 times and then we went out for about a one month actual patrol to go do the actual mission and then came back. The boomers, which are the nuclear deterrents of the Navy, they go out for about three months at a time. So that's straight up 90 days, no, no surfacing. Yeah. Uh, On the boomer, it's a fun story. The USS Nebraska, everyone joins the Navy to travel and see the world. It turns out boomers don't hit ports. So we just heard that one went to South Korea like last month or a month ago. And that really was a huge deal to have nuclear weapons pull in and surface that close. So you were on a boomer oh, and yeah. you were on the conversion, the, con- the spec ops like converted yeah. submarine as well. Yeah. So, so my actual boat was the USS Nebraska. I got sent there after two years of training, got there in January. And by the end of February, that boat was on cement blocks for the next three years. Got it. Um, and then that's and during, when you went over to the SSGN. 
I did six months on the SSG and the other two and a half years were literally replacing the reactor. So we pulled, we cut the submarine in a big hole in it in half, replaced hundreds of miles of cabling and wire. We pulled old uranium and put in new uranium and it was a crazy process. Uh, but yeah, that's what I spent the majority of my Navy career doing. It's called an engineering refueling overhaul. Oh my gosh. Okay. So just to be clear, so you show up from training, you're in the Nebraska, then you yep. go from the Nebraska to the SSGN, then you go back to the Nebraska to do the engineering overhaul of the nuclear reactor. 100%. And the purpose of going on the Michigan was to actually qualify submarines and learn about an operational submarine because obviously one on cement blocks doesn't quite work as well. Yeah. So, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. And so then what was your, what was, why did you decide to leave after your four years of that? Were you just tired of being in dry docks or what's the, what was your reason for bouncing? Yeah, great question. The initial contract of a Navy nuke is six years. So we sign uh, a six-year contract and I was actually I uniquely knew that was going to be my only contract, I think, before I even got to my boat. And I wasn't shy about being honest about that, which was good and bad. But I never, once I was in the military, I never saw it as a career. I always wanted to utilize it as the best stepping stone possible after screwing up the traditional path that you're supposed to do. Okay. Gotcha. And so you always knew and you communicated that. And was it hard for you? I know when I was telling people it's time for me to get out, people were like, really, do you really want to do that? Cause I, I had some medical stuff where I was on the fence and it was like, they're like, you can fight this or you can just let the winds take you where they will. And when I said, I'm just going to let this play out, People are like, well, why don't you fight it? Like, why don't you stay in? Think about X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. So what was it like for you dealing with all of those thoughts when you're talking about, hey, like, this is it for me? Yeah, it went both ways and it depended on who I was speaking with. I think the honest peer-to-peer -peer conversations with other Navy nukes inside the engineering department were pretty much no hassle, super smooth, understand it. At the time, you could re-enlist for anywhere from seventy dollars to $95,000 re-enlistment bonus. Um, and so you had a lot of people that would star re-enlist, automatically put on E5 um, and extend for two years and just get a, a nice paycheck for the next two years and the way they divvy it up. Um, so the incentives were definitely there. So saying no to them, you were in the minority. It was like, well, what do you mean you don't want 80 grand or you're not, it's only two more years, dude. So those on the engineering side, pretty open and honest and easy. And most people understood it was the non-engineering E7s and up, like the chief of the boat or the other chief duty officer that day who's just trying to, to BS with you and have some fun and being like, hey, Aaron. When are you re-enlisted? And you're just like, I'm not, chief. They're like, well, what do you mean you're not? No, I'm not. So they, sometimes I think they were surprised by my openness of 
not wanting to re-enlist, but I also maintained a really good work ethic and professionalism throughout my entire contract as well. It's not like I wasn't doing my job or planning to get out. I don't think you can really uh, half-ass nuke <laughs> Navy like nuke positions. I don't feel like that's one of those things that you can really do not well. At least that's my perception of it based off of what I know about the training and then what's required of you when you show up. So, yeah. yeah. It would be tough to make it all the way through getting fully qualified with with a poor attitude or not good work ethic. I would imagine I would imagine so. And so for you, did you ever I I feel like we people in the military, we always know that one person who well, not just one person. The military does have a lot of stability involved with it. It's very safe. You have a lot of structure. And so for you, even though you knew that you were going to get out, did you ever have any kind of internal struggle with either A, people are offering you a lot of money or being challenged on getting out? Was that ever an issue for you? Or were you always pretty, I came in with this purpose. I knew I'm going to get out. And then you go for it. I was in a lucky spot to really never question getting out. However, I will say I'm right at that point where I spent six years in the military and coming up in about a month, it'll be six years out of the military. And the structure and the professionalism and the good parts about the military, they're unmatched. And in my experience, unseen um, since I've been out. So you do miss it, but I was never worried about losing it. And I'm still not sad that it's gone, but you definitely compare it and have it as a metric and uh, it's true, pure machinery with human form and it's very efficient and it's very matter of fact and it it is easy there there is an ease of putting on the same uniform every single day wearing the same thing going to the same place working with the same people having a literal plan of the day that's broken down by 15 minute increments um and i haven't even come close to matching the stability or the rigor of the navy since getting out of it it's on purpose but I haven't even come close. That's really cool that you recognize what the military was, but then you've, I want to dive into you saying you've crafted your life in a specific way on purpose here soon. But since you knew you were getting out, did you do anything to prepare for your military transition on the front end when you were in drive? Not, not even close, man. And I should have done way, way more. And I now am getting karma back because I tell veterans to start way sooner and they blow me off too. But for some reason, I don't know why it's so hard in that period of a service member's life to open up fully and ask for help, but very few do it. And I did not. I didn't have a LinkedIn. I barely had a resume. I had a job lined up, so I wasn't really looking for a job, if, if that makes sense. But it's not, I didn't even prepare for the job I had lined up. I just went in blind and said, I'll figure it out. 
So then what if in a perfect world, if you were going to go back and do it again, maybe you give this advice and someone hears it and then they don't blow you off. But what would you have done in knowing what you know now? I think I would have tried to place a higher value on the network that was surrounding me. Something that was so common and so every day for six years of my life had more value than I ever gave it credit for. And once you're out of that circle, it's not impossible. And it's not, I wouldn't even say it's hard, but it just, it becomes more difficult to remember everyone you served with, remember where they ended up, where they're from, what boat did they transition to? Whereas if you connect with someone on LinkedIn or Facebook and you go, look, dude, I don't know anything about you. I don't even really like you. You don't even really like me, but one day we might be able to help each other get a job when we're on the other side of this. Um, I think would, if I was a nuke saying that to another nuke at active duty, I think it would make a lot of nukes pause and go, oh man, I, maybe you're right. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. No, I like that. And I think that, yeah, it's funny. I think the thing that I love the most that you said is we as a military community just have a really hard time asking for help. And now that you've had time to talk to other folks, you're in recruiting now. So you're literally reaching out to these people who are about to be on the outside. Why do you think that veterans have such a hard time engaging with the transition process uh, leading up to it? It's certainly not because Uncle Sam sets you up for success. I, I don't think many veterans are doing it because they're like, I know everything. My resume is perfect. My interview skills are perfect. My networking skills are perfect. So it's not an overconfidence of skills, at least in my experience. Man, I really don't know. Being so comfortable with your department and your division, I'm assuming happens across all the branches. And it's not just specific to the one division that I was in. But the way I describe it is I haven't talked, I've maybe kept in contact with, let's call it one and a half people over the past six years. However, anyone in that 60 person engineering department could text me or call me or hit me up on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm in Denver, I need a place to sleep. And they would have a place to sleep tonight. It'd be no questions asked. So maybe being that comfortable with people going to complete strangers is a shock. Why don't I'm trying to think about why I didn't ask for help. Having confidence, maybe it's not an overknowledge thing, but confidence that you'll be all right. I just made it through an enlistment and the deployment or this and that. I'll be okay on the other side. I struggled a lot with other people need way more help than I need. So why should I drain the resources? which is silly. This is a good question, man. Yeah. Like, I love the one you just said that I really love and that I struggled with is I, with the drain on resources, when I was going through all of my medical stuff, I had a stroke on the toilet. Like, oh no. See, like it is bad. And I tell people and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, yeah, but someone got their legs blown off in the Middle East or Right when that right when my thing happened, we were pulling out of Afghanistan and all those Marines got tuned up doing it during the evacuation. And so I would look at them and go, I was like, I can't ask for they're like, make sure you fill out your VA stuff. And I'm like, but what about those people? And 
I think that's a real thing in the military that we have where we're taught to be selfless. We're taught to not be the nail that sticks up because if you get taken out, then someone else has to give more for you. And just a lot of things feed into that. But I really do think that's a problem that people have. And additionally, I really think it just boils down to you don't know what you don't know. I think we assume we know more about the civilian world than we do. And we'll just think, oh, yeah, I'll just figure it out as we go. And there's just a lot. There's just I don't think we understand how big it is, how big the problem is until it's there. And then you're like, oh, shit, like this is. And then you don't want to tell ask people for help once you realize how big it is, because then you're like weak and you don't want to be perceived as weak. So then you don't ask people. But that's I don't know. That's just those are my thoughts after analyzing it for about a year and a half of my life. So, yeah, I, I didn't even touch on or, or didn't even peek in my brain that we have no idea what's how civilians operate. But that's that's a whole different topic for me, because I think that affects people more once they find a position, because I had to throttle down, dude. We're mission driven beings and we're built on efficiency and ready to show progress. We're not there to punch a time card. And I've heard multiple stories um, where it's the, hey, buddy, slow down. Like you're either one, making us look bad or two, you're doing good, but you're also overstepping your boundaries without even realizing it. And you need to pump the brakes and just do what was on the job description first. Yeah, we, you literally just stole my thunder. I had this really beautifully crafted question that I wrote out on my iPad here, which was basically, what was it like getting out and going from a super hyper-focused job to nothing? And yeah. I like when you're talking about your military career, I'm just like, I had a pretty lax schedule as an instructor right before that I got out. Like it, we were like switch, we were either teaching or we weren't. And so when you weren't teaching, you were either doing development or you were just like doing managerial or like admin tasks. But I can't even imagine what it was like for you for basically your entire career. You were just switched on to 100%. It's like training, subs, calling the subs. Now you're swapping out a nuclear reactor by have a nice life. Like, what was that like for you when you got your DD-214 and then it was just like, oh, well, you're done. <laughs> like, like so, no schedule, so first, no nothing. First and foremost, do you want me to actually tell you what a schedule was like in Shipyard? Yes. So this is boat on cement blocks, mm -hmm. house 15 minutes away. The engineering department for the vast majority of that time was on three section rotating port and starboard duty. Which means, let's just pretend your duty day is on Monday. So you're going to get to work at 7 a.m. You're going to have duty until 7 a.m. on Tuesday. During that, you're going to stand 12 hours of watch because you're port and starboard. So you're splitting it. And then during the day, you're still expected to support the division and the department. This is a department. We have maybe 13 people in our EDIV group. So it's the 13 of us. There's four, four on duty one day, four on duty the next day, four on duty the next day. So Monday, you have duty. Tuesday, you get off duty at 7 a.m. You work a full day. You go home probably 1,800. And then you come back on Wednesday, work a full day. You probably leave at 2,000 on Wednesday because you're the working party. And then Thursday, you come back and have a duty day again for 24 hours and stand 12 hours of watch. 
And then Friday, you're off going, work a full day Friday. Saturday, you would have off. And then Sunday, you would stand 24 hours duty, 12 hours to watch again. And that was wrench wash repeat for two and a half years. So it, it averages about 100. Depending on your duty days, it's either 90 or 120 hours per week. And, and you, you went immediately one, from that to literally do whatever you want, have a nice life. Yes. Basically, I went to a normal nine to five Monday through Friday job. If you show up 20 minutes late, no one says anything. If you leave 20 minutes early, no one says anything. Like, What was that like for you mentally? Uh, it was, in my particular case, I went to, so Carolina Career College was a family affair. So there was a lot of people there with my last name and it was a, still a small team, maybe 20, 22 employees or stuff. So for me, I think I had an extremely unrealistic view of changes that could be made and how fast they could be made. And I wanted more efficiency and more better, good stuff to keep it simple out of that business. And we'll ultimately discover that the military has truly perfected the human aspect of it, or at least made it very simple. And in the civilian world, the human element is so much more of a variable. Um, where you don't know who you're going to make mad. You don't know whose toes you're going to step on. And this is me coming in with good intentions and good thoughts that were pushed people the wrong way. And that was certainly unexpected, essentially getting told, Hey, I have an idea that I think could make your life easier and getting told to shut up and get back on the phone, do your job. Um, was interesting, but I still struggle with turning off as far as work and objectives and goals and missions and outcomes. So it's, it's definitely a recalibration, man, like full throttle. When you're going full throttle in the military for real, if you're preparing for a mission or on mission or doing a exam or an ORSE. Full throttle there compared to a civilian corporation who has a deadline of this Friday for something full throttle. And in my opinion, night and day, like not even close. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself trying to look for additional stuff or just like overhyping a lot of things that didn't need to be overhyped just because your brain needed to fill in that gap of intensity? I think I definitely looked for more efficiencies or what could we do? And in my particular case, it was like, how could we spend our marketing budget better? Or what events could we go to that are better? Um, everything was still military focused um, at my role at Carolina Career College. So like the passion was there, but I definitely went too hard, too fast with not enough understanding of the true playing field because it is, it's, you're in a whole different arena. Um, and some, I don't even know if the civilian world operates in arenas. It's like the park on second and Curtis versus the Broncos, well, let's not use the Broncos, uh, versus the Nuggets stadium. Uh, 
So it's definitely an adjustment. And I think it's easy to get kicked in the teeth if you go too hard. And that sucks for a veteran who is excited and optimistic about their civilian future and is, again, going in with a very good intent, but just doesn't understand the scene fully to be like, hey, I feel like we could change XYZ to ABC and it would help because of this. And all of a sudden that turns into a disciplinary meeting where you're getting told, hey, your job is this, go do that. Yeah. And it's also it also really stinks because you come out. I had a conversation in the last podcast that I had with a guy. The He made a really interesting observation. It's you literally exit the military at like the top of your game, or at least most people do. You yeah. were the best right when you left. And then you go into this new environment where you literally suck. <laughs> you don't know yeah. anything again. And having to basically bring your ego back down and re except I don't know anything again and I've got to restart this whole thing is so hard for so many people, especially because we just like, like you enjoyed being part of the valued, you enjoyed being a valued member of the team who knew what was up and all of these things. And then starting from scratch again is, is really hard to, yeah. and you just and want again, to do a good job. Yeah. And it's not just the skills, it's the people element too. And it makes it it's, it's, it is, it's very difficult to stay up to speed. Um, because what being up to speed means in the military versus what being up to speed means in the civilian world. Again, it's two different benchmarks. 100%. So one interesting thing that I'm, I want to dive into that human factor element, which is, which I think you've said really well, which is, it's very easy in the military and it's very weird outside of the military. How did you learn to start dealing with that new human element that you hadn't had to, you didn't have to consider when you were in the service? Yeah, the truth is I'm still learning, but my biggest thing is I try and focus on transparency. And I think one of the biggest difference between the, the military and civilians when it comes to transparency is in the military, it runs from A to Z. And in the civilian world, it stops with conflict or uncomfortableness. Whereas we're able to push through that in the military of, hey, you messed up this part of the procedure and we could just let it go and not say anything. But unfortunately, you got to go stand in front of the captain and we're doing this. You got shocked. You could have hurt somebody, blah, blah, blah. Those were called critiques in the engineering department. And we had dozens upon dozens of critiques and every single one was very formal, very the same way. What did you do? How did you do it? Where did you mess up? Why did we mess up? What do we do next time to not mess up? And the confrontation aspect on the civilian world, it tends to, it's like pure good transparency and then it just halts. And it stops when it gets to that uncomfortableness sometimes. And that can be with clients. It can be during the interview processes. It can be with peers. It can be with bosses. So I think trying to put yourself in a position where you want to be open and honest and share what you're feeling in a professional way, you have to force that even if the, the door seems to be shut. 
So if that happens, I feel like we have to be the squeaky wheel. They're like, all right, I haven't heard back from this. I'm sending that follow-up email and I'm going to be pretty specific. But again, it is, it's a tough situation still. Yeah. How do you think veterans, how do you think people who are getting out of the military can mentally prepare themselves to start dealing with that new human element that they aren't necessarily prepared to deal with? How do they prepare for the human element? I guess you got to be prepared to understand that what you say might be taken more personally than it's ever been said. And again, that's hard. I won't say it on the podcast, but after this, you should ask me the last email I got from my Navy chief. Like it's just, to me, it's one of the funniest things in the world. But if it went to anyone else, um, you know. So how do you prepare for the civilian aspect? Man, I don't know. Look inward a little bit too. Sometimes the problem is us or we're more of an aspect of it than we give ourselves credit for. Make sure we're not presenting that old grouchy, crabby, salty veteran and that we're not going in with alpha egos and chest held high and beaten chest and we're going to come in and dominate this place. Again, be respectful and understand that you're coming into someone else's environment and home. And ultimately, this is, I'm assuming, going to be a career that if it's not going to be yours forever, it's going to launch you to your next stepping stone. And just because there's no contract holding you there doesn't mean the respect and authority or respectfulness shouldn't be there, even if they're not the ones showing it. Like we're the example setters. We know, I think more often than not, we know what should be done, regardless of if there's a policy for it or not. But I don't know. Be prepared to walk away. Don't let anger get a hold of you. Don't, if if someone pisses you off in an email, don't respond right away. Like I always let things settle. Um, I think simple questions instead of assumptions can help a lot of the time. Let's say you get an email that you think pisses you off instead of saying, well, hey, Sean, that was really mean. I don't appreciate that. Be like, Sean, hey, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding this email. Let's hop on a five-minute phone call and let's figure this out. But there's just, there's so many emotions in the civilian world. There are so many emotions all over the place from teams of five to companies in the tens of thousands. And again, that's something that the military somehow maintains without it even being a forward focus. Like we never really thought about, I didn't never really thought about that. Like, oh, I got to worry about making my peer mad or stepping on their toes or doing their job better than them, that was rewarded in the military. In fact, doing your job bad was sometimes a reward. We used to call it hookups for F-ups because they want to be trusted with anything, right? So they would be the tool getters or the briefers or the, the runners, whereas the more competent people would be the ones with the hands in the machines. The B-team concept, man, it's, uh, it's yeah. real. The, so for you... Something you just brought up there when you're talking about how emotions exist in teams of all sizes in the civilian world and it didn't really exist. What was it like working? What was it like for you having to adjust from that small team community aspect of the subs and then your engineering department to going into a much more individualized, the the much more individualized world of the civilian world? It's a horrible way to bring that sentence, but... 
what was that like for you going from that super tight knit community to something that was much more loose? I think you just, you realize inefficiencies. You realize that what we were just talking about as far as B team personas are not just in the military. I think a lot of things I learned in the military, I thought were isolated to the military. And then you just learn that there's just a different version of them in the civilian world. So again, our engineering department was so transparent and so efficient and so communicative. That was the baseline standard for me. So walking into somewhere where there's literally like four bosses that are all within a hundred feet of each other and none of them know what's going on, to be honest, it's frustrating and it's tough not to go back to your military baseline, which is why I'm saying like everything requires a recalibration and a, I don't want to say directly a lowering of standards, but that's the easiest thing I can relate it to. Nothing is truly mission critical in a civilian world where in one way or another, all just making someone else a few extra bucks. That's what working harder does. It makes someone else a few extra bucks, but they make so much bucks. They don't really care about you working a little extra harder to make those few bucks. Cause when you don't work that hard, you still make them a little bit of bucks. So it's like, it's, it's yeah. Oh, I, I like it. And I agree. I think that maybe not lower your expectations, but I think certainly your expectations need to change. And I just think going the priority isn't national defense anymore. It's monetary. It's pro it's for profit, I think is a really good way to shift your expectations. And I think another way that military folks can shift their expectations is I think that you hear a lot. One of the things that we hear a lot is, Hey man, your skill set and what you are in the military is really just going to crush it out in the big, bad civilian world. And I do believe that to an extent is true but I do think that as we, like we discussed before, the environment is different. So you need to learn how to understand the environment before you can really start sprinting at full speed. And additionally, going too fast or letting that militariness bleed out too much can be overwhelming to everyone else around them, except for other veterans who are just like, look at that guy. Yeah. So much energy, so much, so much power. I had a thought while you were saying that, but I think to reset expectations, like all veterans should just watch Office Space before their civilian interviews, you know, <laughs> just watch that movie from start to finish, re reset a little bit. I love uh, it. Yeah. Hey, listen, I think that should be part of TAPS. I agree. I think that would be fantastic. For you, what was it, how do you feel like you have, what have you done to tune yourself down after going so fast in the military 24 seven, like how have um, you spun yourself down? Yeah. So I, I've had a pretty unique journey with getting some pretty high level business experience, right? Right out of the Navy, that company ultimately closing during the pandemic and then finding myself on the unemployment line with a lot of other people. And then three years ago, about this time, making the decision to, to start hire one. But ultimately, I needed to find a community again. And it took me a little bit 
to do it. Carolina Career College was it for a little bit, but ultimately was not it. So I connected with a veteran nonprofit focused on entrepreneurship, which is called Bunker Labs. I'm still involved with that organization to, to this day. I appreciate everything they do. But finding that community of other veteran-connected entrepreneurs is ultimately what relit my passion and spark again. So refinding my community. And then the other thing I've done is to be super conscious, almost overly conscious of work-life balance, realizing that one day I want to be a dad, not quite a stay-at-home dad, but certainly not a work in 90 hours a week, dad, and that the perception of life and success of having a big house or a big boat or a big car, I don't know if it was ever fully there, but I think everyone thinks about that at some point in time, truly letting go of that and and having no aspirations other than, hey, man, if I'm debt-free with an income, I'm feeling pretty, pretty okay about that. So the super focus on work-life balance has forced me to realize I need more than one job, if you will. So hire one is my main time commitment. However, on top of that, I volunteer here in Denver. There's a rescue mission not far away that I've been volunteering with to do like meal prep or dishwashing, put, it, put things back into perspective. And then connecting with an organization like Bunker Labs for two years, I've been volunteering with Bunker Labs. And then just recently it turned into a small 1099 contract gig, you know, nothing crazy, but that, that idea of following your passions and maybe having three streams of income equal one W2 position, um, is what I've had to do for my brain. And I know that's a super unique journey. But I can't do the same thing every single day for 40 hours a week for the next 20 years just to make other people happy. So there wasn't one thing that I could do to make me happy that would cover all my bills. So I split it up until three. I love it. I think that's yeah. great that you've been able to diversify your interests and your and just the things that you do with your time. For you, being in a job that was so in the military that's been so work oriented, what do you think you've done to, do you think you've done a good job of building a life outside of work um, now that you're out of the military after it consumed you so much in the service? Yeah, but it also takes a lot of work too, right? Um, I think it's that people element again, Right. There's an aspect of, oh man, every time I text this friend, they're busy or this friend text me too much. I text this friend too much. So again, the social element of it is there. One thing I've struggled with since getting out is realizing that you don't have to be friends with everyone in the military. There's no choice. So you're completely professional and competent with someone who you like literally dislike. But I stand behind what I said earlier. Even that person who I disliked seven years ago on the boat could still call me tonight and have a place to sleep. So it's something that is, is a lot of work, but I think it's well worth it. I love having friends that are not 
direct military friends or forced friends inside of people and how I've been able to do that. We work. I've met quite a few people at just social networking events that we work. Bunker Labs has been a really good one, but that's more kind of friends that are spread out all over the place, kind of digital friends. And then just asking friends of friends, hey, people, I just moved to Denver. Who do you know in Denver? And getting like blind friend dates is what I call it. If you knew someone in Denver and you're like, Brandon, you got to go hang out with David. David and I would go hang out and there's a pretty good likelihood that we would both at least be neutral with each other. So making friends is definitely important, but it is another, it's another aspect of life that I didn't have time for in the military. My family was my division. Again, when you work, when you truly work over a hundred hours a week for years straight, it all gets blurry. I 100% believe that. And I think that just for everyone in the military, but especially people who are working schedules like you worked, it's almost impossible to separate all of those little aspects of life back out after they've been crammed together into one thing for so long. And then you have to like learn, oh my gosh, friends aren't part of work all the time. Or, oh, I should probably have some hobbies because now I have time for hobbies and all these other things. And I just think for a lot of people, no one tells you that you have to do that. And so it's really hard for people to start learning how to parse that out as they go, which is, which I think is just a hard thing to do on the fly once you're out of the military. Dude, I I haven't even thought about some of the questions that you're asking in my, in, in six years, right? So although the information is maybe in there. The puzzle pieces have never been put together and said out loud. Uh, and I've been out for six years. So, well, glad we can and, have the, co- the conversation. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're definitely pulling, you're pulling interesting strings and putting perspective on stuff that is valuable and hard to think about on an independent basis with no background of it. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I really just love talking to interesting people like yourself who have had like, just crazy experiences up until now. And it's, it's really, it's fun for me to be able to talk to everybody that I've gotten to talk to and to learn because everybody has just a really awesome take. And I love getting everybody's takes. And my favorite part is going back through the editing and going, man, Brandon had some fire thoughts on this hour, however long, like this hour and a half podcast that we're doing. So it's always really awesome for you. What I'm really, what I'm interested in now is hire one. How did it start? Why did you do it? What's the, where did that come from? Especially during COVID, if you started it in 2020. Yeah. So the writing was on the wall at Carolina Career College by the end of my time there. So pre-COVID, early 2020, yeah, early 2020, I was actively potentially looking at what was next. And ultimately what was next was working at a big military recruiter as an account executive. So Bradley Morris, Orion Talent, Cohen Group, some of the big, and those are all good places. I say those names with thumbs up behind them. These are bricklayers and I've been around for a long time of military transitions and helping veterans get jobs and they have their way of doing it. So essentially... If COVID didn't happen, I think I'd be a very successful account executive at one of those firms. I'd probably work my way up. I'd wear suits. I'd become uh, whoever manages 10 
Yeah, no, probably not. You know, um, hair, hair wouldn't be long. I'd be wearing a suit. I'd be in a much more corporate setting, working with big companies. But COVID did happen and they, they froze hiring. And again, I found myself very unexpectedly in the unemployment line for the first time and hopefully the last time. Um, but I was there. So literally got bored to the point where I was like, I got to go do something. The benefits at the time were well above what they were prior to COVID with all the support or money behind them. So it's like, even that didn't make me feel good. I'm like, so I stopped that early, went and started selling Harley Davidson motorcycles in 2020. I love motorcycles. I bought my first motorcycle at 19 and have two in the garage right now, but literally only made it two months there, two months there, absolutely crushed it. Sold five bikes in one day was like the first sales rep to, to do that would have been extremely successful, but walked in after two months and quit because it reminded me I wasn't honoring what I said I was going to honor towards myself in the Navy, which was work-life balance is important. Promotions are important. Long-term view is important. And it just wasn't the atmosphere where I could achieve all those things. So it wasn't that it was a bad job um, or that I was bad at it. So that was, I want to say probably July and August, I think are the two months I worked. After that, called up an old colleague. We had lunch. We talked about some ideas off the thing and decided to open up Hire One. So we did the LLC registration. We made a website and we started October of 20. Um, Bunker Labs was a big supporter in that as far as connecting me with a community that inspired and connected and gave good peer trusted support. And we're about to turn three years old and we've learned a lot. We're still a small team. We basically 2X every year. And if we can continue to do that in a decade, we'll be a pretty formidable, cool player in the game. That's awesome. I So what do you think gave you the ability or the foresight to craft those goals that you had for yourself? Like the work-life balance, promotions are yeah. important, all those kinds of things. Because I did it with hundreds of other veterans sitting across the table. I forced hundreds of other veterans. So my time at Carolina Career College as the military liaison was me connecting with transitioning veterans and doing a smart goal meeting with them. Sounds cheesy, specific, measurable, attainable, relatable, time bound. But I, I had a really good sales mentor who, when you break down sales, it's ultimately good communication and learning how to get people to, to talk to you. And I did that hundreds of times over the three years I was there. So forcing teaching is the best way to learn. Um, so that's after a few hundred meetings of those, you're like, dude, you got to take your own advice. You're spitting it all day long. You're helping people through it. It's finally time. So similar to all the tools and resources were in my brain. It's just, they needed to be picked and put in the right order. Um, Right. And so what do you, what would your advice be to people listening to this podcast for actually setting those goals for themselves as they're getting ready to leave the service? Yeah, I think you gotta try and find a, if you're a veteran specifically, try and find a free resource of an independent third party, getting a first degree connection to look at your resume or do interview prep or help you set personal goals tends to just be a lot harder. It's honestly easier with a stranger. 
and someone too good at it. A shout out I would definitely give for transitioning veterans would be Hire Heroes USA. Um, they're a high volume organization. They do upwards of 10,000 assisted hires per year, if not more. So they have a well-oiled machine to help get your resume looked at, help help you with interview prep. But yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And what would you say, what would you, what advice would you give to people for sticking to those goals? Especially because you had just gotten out of unemployment, your first job, you're crushing it and then you left. So I would say that a lot like going back to the military thing, you had some level of stability and you chose to leave anyway, based off of your convictions or goals that you had set for yourself. And what do you think you have that allows you to do that? Uh, being debt-free is certainly part of it, right? Like having a low financial burden, um, I think has made a lot of this possible. If I was six figures in debt, like a lot of college graduates or a new homeowner with an 8% interest rate, like it would definitely be difficult. So, so lifestyle has helped, but again, the lifestyle was premeditated to allow this. So I think one thing about setting goals is you have to be okay with failure. You also have to be okay with pivoting. And I think that's where a lot of the problem happens is we're our own worst critic sometimes and we'll beat ourselves up. But my challenge to that is since your last goal setting session, I highly believe that the chances that you have acquired more knowledge since then are high. So it's not that you're changing, you are reassessing and pivoting based on information that was unavailable when you made it the first time. So you shouldn't be accomplishing every single goal that you check and they should be specific, measurable, attainable, time-bound. But you also have to give yourself the grace and the empathy that you're going to give a stranger to yourself and say, man, I was maybe overzealous in these goals or these goals were unrealistic based on this, like still learn from them, dude. But as far as higher one goals, I don't think I've truly accomplished or hit a home run with any higher one goals I've set in over three years. But I sit down and I reassess and I learn and I rinse, wash and repeat while still slowly but surely moving forward. I think persistence is a big key to success and not making the same mistake twice. Make mistakes all you want, but don't make the same mistake. When you said earlier that you haven't crafted a strict lifestyle. And we've talked about this when already where you have that, you want to have that work-life balance. You've tried really hard to establish your community through bunker labs, interacting with friends, all of that stuff. Do you, what, do you have any other advice that you would give veterans who are just really wound up from a high ops tempo that they could take to also not craft a very strict lifestyle? Yeah, you have to know what your end goal is, because if you truly can crystallize and visualize your end state, it makes the decision-making process much more clear. And what I mean by that is every decision I make 
that's involved in my professional, personal uh, life goes through a filter of my end goal. And I put it through a very simple filter of positive, neutral, negative. So my filter is, would this decision be a positive, a neutral, or a negative? And then a lot of the times, if it's a neutral to positive, the answer is yes. If it's a neutral to negative, it's let's get more information and consider this. But crystallizing your end goal, and again, mine is a debt-free, active dad with a um, sustainable income from multiple different sources that is extremely maintainable. Like it's nothing, like I'm not looking to make $3 million a year, a tenth of that would be pretty, pretty okay. So I think crystallizing your end goal will help you when you have to make a tough decision. Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Do I go on this vacation or not go on this vacation? Do I move here? Do I not move here? What hobbies do I pick up? How much extendable income do I have? When do I want to retire? Where do I want to retire? And these are tough things to think of and it's okay if they change, but Cementing them in your current uh, mental state and allowing yourself to have flexibility in it, um, I think definitely helps when you have to make the 50-50 calls or the calls that you're truly not sure. I think that's great. And I think that the goal setting is uh, just a real challenge for veterans sometimes because we're so used to being in an environment where all the goals are set. And it's all the structure is already given. So moving out of that space and going into a place where you have to be the driving force of all of your goals and everything else is just a really crazy thing to do that I don't think a lot of people are prepared for. I still could take, again, all of this advice. I'm at the point where it's like, all right, annual reset, start taking your own advice. Because it is, it's easy to do once it's very hard to do consistently. Yeah, I completely agree. I still, I've only been out for a year and a half and I'm very much so still trying to figure out like how to set goals, how to maintain the goals. Those are things that I still definitely work on a lot and um, it's hard, but I'm I'm happy that I'm doing it and I've seen some success. I've seen some failure and uh, I'm trying to figure it out, but I definitely think it's something that everyone should hear about and attempt because it's better than nothing. And that's by far and away the, I think the thing that everyone needs to really think about and consider. For you, one thing I didn't ask you that I'm really curious about is like, why didn't you go into nuke stuff when you got out? Yeah, great question. That was something else I knew pretty early on. So it's ironic that I had flunked out of college, got invited not to return, went through my process to join the military for a very specific role, knowing I wasn't going to do more than my initial contract. It makes a lot of sense that in 2010, 2011, Brandon thought that he was going to go into nuclear power uh, because he did. That was the original plan. And that was what my research prior to boot camp had led me to believe. The honest answer is my brain isn't built for that much regulation. It is a extremely regulated field as it should be. And for example, it would take us all day to change out five light bulbs inside the reactor room. 
because of how much regulation and material handling and dosimetry monitoring was all involved in briefing and access. So it's, and it's a field also where you make the tiniest mistake and you're in a critique. Like when I say we had dozens upon dozens of critiques, like we really did. It was like, imagine being a mechanic and replacing an engine and you touch the wrong bolt one time. Like, and it's the moment you touch that bolt, it's a stop work. It's a halt. It's a button everything up. You're not working the rest of the day. You got to explain why you did it, how you did it. Um, it's again, un unmatched. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. That, that, no, that makes sense. But again, I, I think it's just so impressive that you chose to do that because you, even though you could make a ton of money doing that, you stuck to your convictions versus chasing that, chasing that the bag or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. I think that I just think for a lot of, I think that's really difficult for a lot of people. And I, I really just want to make sure that is highlighted because of how I just don't think a lot of people do that. And so yeah. at the very least, leave the podcast with, Hey, that's really impressive that you do that. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I don't think about it much because it's not of value to me, but you're certainly not wrong to turn down the signing bonus. I'm almost every job I place a Navy nuke into is more than I've made every year since I've been out of the Navy. And it's, it doesn't bother me one bit because I'm building something and I'm helping. And that's what my soul needs to be happy that and a little two stroke oil and some nature. So I appreciate you saying that I've seen many people, um, think that money has made them happy and some of those people are still riding that wave. Others have since come down from it or some are actually on their way up. My firm belief is that it never will make me happy in the long run. So I'm in my early thirties and when I'm double this age is a Rolex and a suit and a Mercedes gonna define Brandon Aaron or is who he's helped and what messages he's put out and who he's connected done more. So that's factor that, that, that drives me. I've seen people make seven figures plus for a long time. And ultimately their world comes crashing down because they can't look themselves in the mirror. Yeah. I, I think it's a great thing to talk about and I don't think it's bad to make a lot of money, but if the goal is to just make a lot of money, you can definitely miss a lot of things along the way. So, ding, ding. Yeah. But last question for you before we wrap up, what is the, oh, what is the final piece of advice you want to leave the listeners with? Man, stay humble and try and be nice. Don't take things too personally. I think we need more more neutral to positive assumptions than we do negative assumptions. I think there's just so many opportunities to assume negativeness when in reality it's a neutral at worst and neutrals turns out aren't bad people. It's okay in a professional setting to say something neutral or to request something neutral. So for military veterans, I think stay humble. Don't go in with your chest high. 
but also know that if you find the right position, you're going to be valued and you're going to grow and you're going to have a lot of fun. But it is a whole different world out here. And seek resources like this podcast, connect with Billy on LinkedIn, see who he's talking about, connect with me, see who our networks are, and just pull the string until you find someone that has an open, authentic conversation and is willing to shower you with what I call gold in a sense. And if you listen and you take it, it, it can add to the knowledge bank and be there for you when you make your next decision. Hmm. I think that that's all great. And if you're a Navy nuke getting out of the military, reach out to hire one. They'll hook you up. So <laughs> We will do our best. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Actual last question. Is there, are there any resources or websites you want to point people towards? Not really, man. I think follow this podcast, stay supporting the veteran community. I try and keep as much inside the veteran connected entrepreneur community as I can. And if we continue to do that, we were unstoppable when we were in the government's pocket and working for them. We can certainly be unstoppable outside of it as long as we're open and willing to help one another. Hmm. So and if people want to support you, are there any things that they can do to follow you or any, where are you trying to, where are you trying to get visibility? Yeah, basically LinkedIn is where I send all my professional stuff. I'm not a big social media guy. So, so LinkedIn is where I do it. Anyone can email me directly always at Brandon at hireone.com. Super, super simple email. But yeah, if you're military connected, entrepreneurial connected, or have jobs that you think military veterans can fit into, feel free to tell me that you listen to this podcast and got all the way to one hour and some odd minutes. And I'll be very impressed. And we'll, yeah, and we'll have a really good conversation if you mention this part right here. <laughs> I love it. Yep. All of the links to Brandon's stuff will be in the description of the episode below. So go over there, check him out, give him a follow and all that. But Brandon, it's been super fun having you on, man. I really appreciate it. I'm grateful that you decided to give an almost an hour and 20 minutes of your life to give all the people out there great information and insights from your experiences. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for asking really thought-provoking questions that even I haven't fully processed. So this will hopefully do some good out there if someone puts themselves through the same questions you asked me. Well, we hopefully someday we can do a part two and we can go back through all the questions and you can we can see if you've you've got different answers for them. But for everyone out there, thank you so much for making it to the end of the episode. We really appreciate it. We're grateful for your, for your support. You're the reason why we do this. And yeah, we hope that it helps. And the best way that you can support us is liking, subscribing on your favorite platform and sharing with the people that you, who need to hear this message but that's it can't wait to see you guys in the next episode so yeah, catch you on the next one on the post-military podcast peace <laughs>